0: All right, well, let's, uh, let's walk through the text here in the last few minutes that we have and maybe shed a few more things. And really, I think most of our, my thoughts are just going to uh, piggyback and deepen on what was already shared, which is just exciting for me to hear that we're having similar insights through the Holy Spirit and through the friends around our table of, t- of the text. So we kind of come to another snapshot narrative. Remember, that's how Mark writes immediately. Lots of just um, action-packed narrative. And so this is just a a four-verse snapshot. And what we're finding is that this is the third consecutive question that Jesus has been asked. And there will be more to follow. If you remember back when he healed the paralytic, the scribes questioned his authority to forgive sins which led them to charge him with blasphemy. And then him and Jesus and his disciples were eating at Levi's house with the other tax collectors and sinners. And they questioned, why are you eating with these kinds of people? And now the radical rabbi of Jesus is being questioned again. He and his disciples are not keeping in step with The Pharisees or the disciples of John? And it seems certainly like a legitimate question. You're a religious leader. You've been teaching. You've been healing. You're gathering a following. You have some disciples. Why do you and your disciples not fast when the Pharisees are and John and his disciples are? And Christ's answer that we read here is in keeping with the goal of Mark's gospel that we continue to come back to in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is once again a demonstration of his deity and his answer. He's come with the good news of the gospel, which some have already put um, verbiage to. It's the new covenant. And his presence here on earth, as we've already discussed a little bit, calls for celebration. So the work that he is doing and that we'll read on and see that he will continue to do is the inauguration spreading of the kingdom of God here on earth. The relationship of God's people to their God is radically changing. And what we're going to learn and see here is that you cannot mix... The gospel of Christ with anything else. It just doesn't work. Jesus and his gospel is not an add on to other religious forms. Christ and his gospel are exclusive. Now, in context, if you look back at the previous passage that we studied a couple weeks ago, Jesus was just eating at a feast at Levi's house and he was calling tax collectors and sinners to repentance. And meanwhile, the Pharisees were standing off, and and the verbiage here doesn't really tell us exactly what the correlation time-wise is between the feast at Levi's house and this questioning. We can the scriptures don't say that we could not put it either same time or immediately following. So this this dialogue that Jesus has with these people questioning him could be immediately following this feast that Jesus and the disciples were having at Levi's house. So there's a huge contrast between the fasting going on of the Pharisees and the feasting of Jesus and his disciples. We also read here that Jesus and his disciples' lack of fasting stood not only in contrast to the Pharisees, but it stood in contrast to John and his disciples. As we read earlier in Mark chapter 1, John and his ministry was well known for asceticism or extreme life of discipline. Living with little to no earthly comforts. You remember the diet of John? Locusts and honey. remember the clothing of John? Camel's hair? Where he lived? Out in the desert? So most likely his followers... As a disciple of anybody else would, is most likely mirroring the life and the style of life of the one that they're following. So, John's disciples most likely were living a pretty extremely disciplined life themselves. Again, in contrast to the feasting that Jesus and his disciples just enjoyed, which, again, begs, seems like a right question. Jesus, why are you and your disciples so different? And the religious leaders and John and his disciples. Before we dive into the answer to some of those questions, I, I do want to make us all realize that when we look at a passage like this, sometimes we, we're going to cling on to words like fasting and almost go there and say, okay, Jesus is, is pronouncing a judgment one way or the other on fasting. But he doesn't do that. Here, he'll do that in other places, and we'll see described and prescribed in other passages of Scripture how we go about this discipline of fasting. But this particular passage, Jesus is not saying never fast. He's not saying always fast. But what he perfectly does, as always, as the Son of God, is he goes after the question behind the question. And he gets to the heart of the issue. And as he does this, he exposes the heart of the questioners, and he also continues to reveal his identity and his mission. So just on the subject of fasting, very quickly here, it was a pretty normal discipline in the life of God's people under the Old Covenant, particularly on the Day of Atonement. We see that in Leviticus 16, Leviticus 23. Maybe you could write those down in your space of maybe connection to Old Testament or other passages. You may want to look at the discipline of fasting in Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 23. Now the Pharisees, they added to that law. Tradition shows that they fasted every week, two days a week, Monday, and they fasted on Thursday. Now again, Jesus doesn't condemn the practice, although he certainly would condemn them if they took their tradition and elevated it to a point where they, that would become a yoke and a burden on other people because that is not a command of God. Their practice of fasting two days a week was not in the law. It was not binding on the conscience of God's people because it was not required by God to do it the way that they did it. And we do know, those of us familiar with other gosp- the, the furthering story of Mark and other gospels, there are, there are times where Jesus will condemn the Pharisees for elevating their tradition to become on par with the law of God and then putting that yoke and that burden on other people and weighing them down. We're going to see that in the next passage when Jesus talks about the Sabbath. So, that's how the Pharisees fasted. They did it two times a week. And John's disciples were probably fasting for, for a number of reasons. As we already mentioned, it could be they were just following John's lifestyle of extreme discipline. And this is one of the ways that they did that. It could have been because he was in prison at this time and they were fasting and praying for his release. And John's message, like Jesus' message, centered on repentance. And one of the signs, the outward signs of inner repentance that we see throughout scripture is fasting. And so they could have been just using a practice of fasting to show their repentance. But again, the question is, why wouldn't Jesus and his followers participate in the fasting of the Pharisees and the fasting of John's disciples? His answer is not one that condemns or commends the practice, necessarily. Because this passage really isn't about fasting, although we can pull out some principles about it. But as was already mentioned, it was about the timing of the fasting. In relation to Christ being on earth, if we're going to connect that to Mark 1.1, that's the beginning. The timing of the presentation of his gospel and also in relation to Jesus' identity. So his answer to the question comes in two illustrations. In the first part of his answer, Jesus' presence on earth, his physical presence, is likened to a bridegroom on a wedding day. On our day, a wedding is a pretty big deal. There's a ceremony, there's typically... um, Multiple dinners and parties that surround as family and friends get together. But in Jesus' day, these celebrations could go on for a week or more. So if you can imagine, even in our day and age, let alone a wedding celebration in Jesus' day... If the groomsmen showed up and the groom, we're going to use our, our verbiage, is in his tuxedo and prepared to, to marry the love of his life and um, is, is just, it's probably going to be the crowning moment of his life up until this point and his groomsmen all show up in sackcloth and ashes spread all their face and what a day for mourning. I mean, just imagine what that would do to the bridegroom. You don't mourn on a wedding day is what Jesus is saying. It's a day for celebration and for feasting. And so he parallels saying the coming of the Messiah is like a bridegroom on the wedding day and it calls for feasting and celebration. This long-awaited Messiah has come. So fasting at this time when Jesus is present is not proper and it's not fitting. So the first part of the first answer Really has to do with Jesus' presence on earth. The beginning of the gospel. Now, another part of this answer helps clarify Jesus' identity as the Son of God because he calls himself the bridegroom. And you can write down some of these passages, there are others as well, but Jeremiah 31, Isaiah 62. Throughout the whole book of Hosea, God calls himself the bridegroom of his people. And Jesus calling himself, illustrating himself as a bridegroom for his people is identifying him with the God of the Old Testament. So again, he's saying, if you're, feast, if you're fasting now with me, Jesus, being on earth... You have missed the fact that the long-awaited husband of his people, the long-awaited bridegroom, has come. So instead of fasting, you must feast. And then a third tier of his answer in this first illustration. Because God has come to dwell with his people, because the husband of God's people is here, the gospel of Jesus is being confirmed. As he stated in the previous passage, he's come to call the sick to himself. He has come to preach faith and repentance as the entrance into the kingdom of God. No longer will ethnicity or nationality or your religious affiliation be the defining mark of God's people. Now he goes on to say the time is coming for, will come for Fasting. When Jesus leaves, his followers will long for his return. They could also rightly use this discipline to help increase their desire for him. It can aid in a feeling of dependence upon God when we have individual or corporate decisions to be made. We see many illustrations of the early church fasting in these moments. But when Jesus was here, when the bridegroom was here, celebrate Rejoice. And that is why we should should really enjoy the celebration of this Christmas season because we are celebrating the coming of Emmanuel, that God is with us. So rejoice. Put out lights. Hang the Christmas tree. Have an enjoyable, festive home around the Christmas season that's centered on the joy that Christ brings. So the time will come for fasting when he leaves. So the point again in in this first illustration is not that fasting is good or fasting is bad. It's not a proclamation of judgment on that spiritual discipline. The judgment that Jesus is making is that despite your discipline, despite your spiritual acts, you missed me. You missed Jesus. Jesus. They were participating in a form of religiosity, meanwhile missing the fact that God himself was standing before them. And it's, da- it's so dangerous, and it's, it should be a warning to us. Because these, again, were the religious elite. Can we ritualistically attend our formal gatherings at church? We discipline ourselves to read the Bible and be faithful to give our wealth and be faithful to have a time of prayer and participate in other forms of outward religiosity and and miss the beauty and the worth of Jesus. The Pharisees did. All of these spiritual disciplines, when done with a heart of humble submission to the authority of Jesus, and as a means to know him more deeply and to love him, savor him as supreme. So all of those spiritual disciplines that I just listed are the means through which we grow in our relationship with our Savior. But if they're done with a heart of earning, a desire to say, I'm, I'm gaining favor with God because of my disciplined life... Or to merely display evidence of spirituality to those who we see maybe two or three times a week for a block of one or two hours. Or if we do those things to build ourselves up in pride to be able to elevate and feel ourselves superior to other Christ followers. We'll fall in this cycle of legalistic, pharisaical religiosity. If we're doing it for those sakes to earn and gain favor with God and make ourselves look good. We're not abiding in Jesus and seeing Him produce fruit within us, but rather we're leaning on our own discipline and our own religious forms to affirm our standing with God. So may God help to keep us from a religious form that's void of a fervent love for Him. Because He came not for the well... Not for those who saw themselves as righteous, but he came for the ones who recognized their weakness, recognized their sinfulness, recognize their sickness. But then the next illustration, Jesus goes even deeper. He makes it incredibly clear that you cannot mix Christ's gospel with any other form of religion. So the first problem that Jesus addresses with the illustration of fasting and the bridegroom is that they were trying to slap their discipline, and he talks about fasting here because that's what they asked him about. They're basically taking fasting and other religious duties and just trying to slap it on top of a false religion. And it was a religion that didn't have Christ as the center. It was one that saw performance of duties as the means to righteousness rather than what Christ called them to, humble repentance and faith in this one who came to save sinners. And again, our our mind should go back to that previous passage. How did the Pharisees describe the ones that Jesus ate with? Those are the sinners. Those are the tax collectors. You shouldn't be mingling with them. And then remember Jesus' response was essentially, they're the ones I came for. I didn't come for people like you who don't see themselves as sinners. These are the ones I came for. So you can't just patch some issues with your life with a little bit of Jesus. You can't just fill a hole with with Christ. The new way of relating to God cannot be added to the old, but it came to replace the old. And in the same way, in this illustration he uses of the wine and the wineskins, you can't pour Christ into your outward religious forms and expect it to hold up. Because if you think of new wine, it still has for some fermentation to go through it that expands and it expands into that brittle old wineskin that has no more give. And if you think you can pour Christ into all your other religious forms, you're gonna lose the wine, you're gonna lose Jesus, and your outward religious form is going to break as well. So the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be superimposed upon old patterns of relating to God. The old way is giving way to the new. Christ will in one way ruin your old religious patterns, and if you try to keep both, you're going to end up losing both. So let me give you three things here as we close. Why can't you mix Jesus with anything else? (laughs) You can't mix Jesus with anything else because of the exclusivity of his gospel. He didn't give room for that. He didn't come to patch some holes in the Old Covenant. He came to completely fulfill it. And he did that in three offices. We were just talking around a pastoral staff meeting. Pastor Jonathan is going to give some clarity to those in his his sermons on Sunday mornings in December. And I promise I already wrote this. I didn't steal it. But in His office as priest, Jesus coming as priest, He entered once and for all into the Holy of Holies. The old office, the human office of priest, demanded non-stop sacrifices for the atonement of sin. And again liken this to kind of the old wineskins. And the sacrifices were for the people of God, but also for the priests. They needed to have their sins forgiven as well. But Christ's fulfillment of the office of priest means he didn't come into a man-made tent, like the tabernacle, but he came into the very presence of God himself, the Father, to offer himself once and for all for the sins of his people. So we see here, this is not a patch or an addition to the sacrifices, but his work replaces it. New wineskin for new wine. Christ's death perfectly satisfied God's demands for perfection, and he appeased his just wrath on sin. This is exclusive. This is not an add on. This is the only way to God the Father. This is the only means of righteousness. You cannot mix any other way to God with Jesus as your high priest. It's one or the other. How about the office of prophet? Christ when he taught didn't declare like the other prophets thus saith the Lord but Jesus was the message Jesus was the Lord he said I declare unto you identifying himself as God he taught as we already saw with authority that no one else had Jesus preached an exclusive gospel of faith and repentance he spoke the word of God but he also was the word of God. So you can't mix anything else with the proclamations of Jesus, the perfect prophet. Now, How about the other office of king? Jesus proclaimed that his kingdom had come. The time was now at hand. And we see him exercise authority over all realms, spiritual realms, casting out unclean spirits and demons. He has authority to forgive sin, He already won a battle in the wilderness with the devil. He will deal a death blow to to the devil at the cross. And one day he will finally cast him into eternal judgment because he rules and reigns as God. We read in Hebrews 1, after Jesus made purification for our sins, he signaled that victory and he signaled his authority by sitting down. It's finished. My work is complete. Because of all that, you can't mix any other authority in your life with Jesus, the perfect and authoritative king. So to see Jesus as a patch or an addition to other religious forms is not just a mistake. It's not something that we can kind of work our way around, but what we're seeing here, it's a damning heresy that will make you lose your old wine skin. And the new wine you try to pour into it, you're going to lose as well. It's disastrous. Now like the Pharisees of the day, today's religions often have some room for Jesus in them. Roman Catholicism, Judaism, Mormonism, Islam. We even see in Paul's letters that the second generation of New Testament churches struggled with this. Two examples, the church in Colossae and the churches in Galatia. Paul was amazed that this church in Galatia would so quickly turn from the exclusive gospel of Christ to the distorted gospel of Judaizers, who were so quick to add the old forms to Jesus' gospel. The Colossian believers, they needed a reminder. That human tradition, man's philosophies, elemental things of the world so easily replace Christ. Extra regulations, an incredibly disciplined life, are just forms of godliness that cannot restrain the flesh if they stand alone without faith in Christ. But in turn, faith in Christ frees us from those external regulations to serve God to serve others to act in love to be able to put on the new self that 's full of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and forgiveness so again, let us not take this passage as a judgment upon spiritual disciplines but rather may it reinform our spiritual disciplines so Read your Bible. (laughs) Be in the Word. But pray that it would be a means through which your hunger and your thirst for God can be satisfied. Pray without ceasing in the model that Christ laid out for us. As we've been told, it's a means through which we commune with God. Give yourself to attending our gatherings And pray that that is a means through which God becomes glorified. We are built up in the faith as he speaks to us through his word. When we read it and pray it and sing it. When we see it in the ordinances. When we hear it preached. Yes, there is room for the spiritual discipline of fasting. May it be the means through which we are reminded that Christ will come again. And then in every arena of our life, we are completely dependent upon Him. So may we not miss or replace Christ with our disciplines, but rather would the disciplines of grace be the means through which we can see Him more clearly. May we get it. (laughs) The Pharisees missed it. May by God's grace we get it and see Him. Let's pray.